You're listening to Radio Influence. We've got a really quick crush for you this week, everybody, but I've got some things I want to get to. The Olympics have wrapped up. I love it. But are they worth it? We're going to have a look at the medal counts and the cost of running the games. And we've been having some great conversations on this year's theme of organizational and team performance, but I want to set it up just a little bit more before we get into some of the great interviews we have coming up. And coming out of the Crush mailbag, a very interesting question that caught me off guard. It just said, Crusher, why the athlete first? And how is it better than just getting out there and playing? Oh, such great stuff. Let's get to it. Roll that intro. You're listening to Crush Performance with the Crusher, Jeff Crushell. Get in on the talent grid and text Crush at 10-12-60 with your questions, comments, or smart-ass remarks. And welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Hey, I want to thank you guys for joining us this week. We've got a lot of great topics that I want to cover. It is going to be a quick crush. I am on the road consulting, and there's going to be a lot of that going on over the course of this spring, especially if Major League Baseball gets underway here. Fingers crossed for that CBA to be ratified and, and the baseball world at the professional level gets underway. I really hope they do come to terms sooner than later. It would be a shame to miss any of this season, especially coming out of the COVID, right? We really do need sports. It's been so great to watch the NFL, see the fans back, the NHL, NBA, the Olympics, of course, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But we're really hoping that uh, Major League Baseball and the Players Association do come to terms. They will sooner or later. I'm hoping sooner. Uh, But I am going to be on the road a little bit. So we're going to be recording with our remote studio that we're going to be taking with us and you're hearing it right now. So just like anything, the show must go on and we're going to find a way here. And as I travel around and consult and get things done, uh, we're not going to let a CBA slow us down. We've got business to tend to. And we're going to pack it into this week's quick crush here. All right. Well, the Olympics are over. I love the Olympics. And thank goodness that the IOC... And the good people in China and all of the countries that got their athletes there made it happen despite all the COVID issues that are still plaguing us somewhat. But I'm just really happy for those athletes. It's really uh, unfortunate that the fans weren't there at the capacity that they should have been. You know, those incredible facilities there, the opening ceremonies I thought were really well done. Closing ceremonies, um, awesome. But all those venues, and there were people there, so it was great to see, but not the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that a normal Olympics would, would host. But the competition got in, and it was fantastic. Uh, I'm just telling you, the Olympics are really taking it to a new level. All these great new hip events that they've added to the classics that have made the Olympics just so special for years and years. You know, all the just customary Olympic winter sports, for example, the Alpine events, you know, the giant slalom, the downhill, men's and women's downhill. You've got the speed skating and the bobsled and luge, the classic, you know, Olympic sports, the biathlon and cross-country skiing. But then you're seeing it getting peppered in with these really sort of new age events that are sort of, you know, moving with today's culture. The short track speed skating, what a huge addition to the games. I I love it. And out on the snow, you know, they're really spinning off like the X Games, making things really hip and just incredible. The freestyle event, you know, you got the half pipe, you got the big air, and of course, ski cross and boarding cross, all these really cool events that are just making the games exciting. And these sports probably resonate more with the younger crowd. 
So from a business standpoint, it's actually quite smart of the IOC to get into some of these games. You know, curling, I love the profile of curling and hockey that happens. I mean, that... The women's hockey, that U.S.-Canada rivalry, there is nothing in the world like that. Uh, the hockey tournament, take a look at that. Sweden wipes out Canada. Of course, Canada, um, known for its hockey prowess, they didn't even make the medal rounds. Are you kidding me? And then Slovakia beats the U.S. for the bronze medal, and the world of hockey has suddenly changed. Now, regardless of whether the NHL players were there or not, that hockey tournament is a big deal. And I think what we saw at the hockey tournament in the men's side, especially, is just sort of that shift of global sport coming to a new level. It's awesome to see these countries that have always sort of been there, but now they're going to a new level and taking over. And I think this is just great for sport across the board. I mean, look at curling. It's a global sport on the women's side and the men's side. There is a group of countries there any one of them can win on any giving tournament i think it's awesome to see right and those of course are sports that might not be so appealing to the younger generation as maybe those x game type events that we're seeing but they're still traditional parts of the olympic games kind of like figure skating figure skating of course we talked about last week overshadowed with the doping scandal we're going to see how this investigation pans out we're going to be talking to some people at wada and the ioc coming up and we're just kind of keeping our fingers crossed that they do come to the right conclusion whatever it might be there's athletes there that still haven't had that incredible experience of being on the podium after their event for any event that Camila Valieva was in the medals, the medal celebration has been postponed until the investigation is finalized. So I think it only really affects the figure skating team competition, uh, but it's quite a shame. We'll talk more about that in days and weeks to come as that investigation gets underway uh, because there's something very wrong there, right? And I, I think we do need to make it front and center. But the Olympics, of course, it's a business. And at the end of the day, uh, it has to make sense. You know, uh, if we go back to our three pillars of setting athletes up for success, teams and organizations up for success. If you remember, we've talked about it before. We have sort of three areas that have to be addressed at the onset of, of you know, consulting with teams and organizations and athletes. And they are one, uh, do you have what it takes to be number one at what you're trying to do? And if not, what do we do? Can we get there? Is it realistic to pursue? That's sort of number one. And if it is, all right, let's map it out. And if you're not quite there, what do we have to do to get there? Number two is do you have the passion and the drive to go through what needs to go through in order to be really, really good or one of the best at what you do? Because it's not easy. It's a grind. It's hard. And understanding that right off the bat is critically important because most people think they can do it until they realize what it actually takes in order to get there. Of course, that's one of the reasons on Crush Performance, we have such an appreciation for any top performer in any area of human performance, right? They have made themselves special. So, you know, you got to have a realization. Can you be number one at what you want to do? Number two, do you have the passion and the grind and the perseverance to actually get it done. And then number three, you have to have that financial model. It's just critical. You can't get it done if you're worrying about money or you don't have the financial wherewithal to make it happen. And there's many ways to balance that, but it has to be addressed on the onset. Then you could start getting into performance and the Olympic games. Well, they're no different. It's certainly a business. They have to balance that checkbook. It has to make sense financially. And of course, we've seen that over the last few bids, the cycling for the bids for host cities. 
Uh, there are some countries and, and cities, provinces, states that just absolutely don't want anything to do with hosting the Olympics. It's just too much of a burden. But when you can make it happen, what an exciting thing for you know your country, your, your host city, uh, your province, state, whatever it might be. But it's got to make sense. I mean, if we look at the cost of hosting the Olympics, this is no small venture. If we look at what happened here in Beijing, you know, the final operating budget, the only number we've really got right now is the final operating budget. It's $3.9 billion. We don't know what the total cost to put it together was. We don't know if the taxpayers put in anything, of course. They have a little different system when it comes to that sort of thing. But did they turn a profit? Well, we'll watch and find out. In 2008, the Summer Games in Beijing, when they had to build the infrastructure for the games, all right, it was $44 billion to put those games together. Again, 2022, the Winter Games, $3.9 billion, but they utilized a lot of the infrastructure that was built in 2008. And that makes sense to me. But the cost in 2008 $44 billion to put together the Summer Olympics. They did turn a profit. We do have that number. They made $150 million on the positive side after the Olympics were said and done. If you go back to 2014, the Sochi Winter Olympics in Russia, to date, they are the most expensive Olympics ever to be hosted at a whopping price tag of $51 billion. Now, that's not all bad. They did turn a little bit of a profit, $53 million on the, on the upside, but $51 billion to put those Olympics together. And if you remember the buildup to that, there was all the talk about the expenses and the resources that were being put into making those Olympics happen. Is it worth it? Well, go back to 1960, the Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley. $80 million to host those Olympics. We don't have data on what the total cost was. We don't have data, at least I couldn't find it, whether taxpayers contributed to that. We don't know if there was a profit there. But take the 2016 Summer Games in Rio de Janeiro, for example. The Brazilian people put in $11.6 billion. The cost of those games, to put those games on, was $13 billion. But they lost money. They lost $2 billion once the games were said and done. So then you have to ask again, what is the upside here? And again, maybe what is the country going to get out of it? Like, do those facilities have long-lasting impact on the health and the wellness and maybe the infrastructure of that country? If the games come around to Rio, can they reuse some of those facilities and then maybe turn a profit? But they lost $2 billion. 2010, going back to the Winter Olympics in Vancouver, it was $1.2 billion to put that together. A lot of the infrastructure was already there. Of course, being a winter nation, Canada was set up. Okay? The taxpayers put in $2.3 billion. And after all was said and done, they turned a profit of $1.9 million. If you go back to one of the disasters, I think, in terms of the Olympics, you got to go back to 2004, the Athens Summer Games. It was a total cost of $9 billion to put those games together, but they lost $14 million on those games in a country that is financially strapped as it is. Like it just, you got to wonder if it makes sense sometimes. What is the upside? There should be a massive upside for any country that goes on to host these games. Of course, we know the legacy stuff that happens afterwards in terms of sport development and getting people engaged. And also if a country does turn a profit, um, 
some of that money goes back into developing their sporting system. But when these countries actually lose money, is the gamble too great? We're seeing countries now turn down the opportunity or walk away from the opportunity of hosting the games because it doesn't make financial sense. There's too many other important things that have to be addressed in their societies and their cultures before they start putting together the biggest party in the sporting world, which is the Olympics, summer or winter. So you have to wonder if it's really worth it to put on the games as they sit right now, summer or winter. Is it just too big? Maybe do we need to compartmentalize and maybe rather than having them every two years, maybe we have certain events alternating summer, winter, summer, winter. Every year there's some form of an Olympics, but we maybe we maybe narrow the scope of the events at each Olympics. Could that be possible? It still allows the athletes to compete and train over time. I don't think there's any magic to a quadrennial plan in terms of athlete development. There really is not. And I think we've seen that here through this COVID uh, shutdown, you know, where the Olympics were delayed, delayed, and we still, still saw incredible world records and incredible performances from the athletes. So I don't think there's any magic to that four-year interval uh, for the Olympics in terms of athlete development. So maybe do we need to change it or do we need to do what we did in Beijing? Again, remember in 2008, when they put together the infrastructure for the summer games in Beijing, $44 billion was the price tag for the 22, uh, 2022 winter games. of course, using a lot of the infrastructure that was already there. So maybe we need to start doing that more, going back to places that we've already been to. Maybe the argument there, of course, is, you know, these places that have are hosting the games reap the rewards. So what about these countries that have never had the opportunity? Well, and that's where the conversation comes. Is it really an opportunity? I mean, listen, you do bring in people and COVID, of course, changed everything. What would the last couple of Olympics look like without COVID, right? Well, I'll go back to 2021 in Tokyo. The total cost of hosting and putting together those Olympics was $29 billion, but they turned a profit of $3.3 billion, even in a COVID landscape. So they did a really, really good job in Tokyo. And of course, the athletes and the infrastructure is there now. So the sporting organizations and sport development is probably going to reap the rewards for years and years to come. And we'll wait and see what happened here with Beijing. Did they turn a profit? Did they not turn a profit? And was it worth it? Big conversation to have revolving around anything of this amplitude, right? But it's got to make sense on the financial side. Unfortunately, that's just a realism of today's landscape. In the end, I think, just thank goodness these games went off. I really do feel for those athletes that could not make it because of COVID. There were athletes that couldn't travel because they tested positive. So they missed this Olympic games. And that is a heartbreaker for sure. Hopefully everybody were beyond this COVID madness and we can move forward uh, with sort of a normal landscape, but the Olympics are done. And, you know, we talked about this in the last couple of shows, we've been watching the medal counts and it kind of finished off as scripted as we discussed Maybe not quite with the exact numbers, but Norway is on top. And what have we been talking about this last couple of months? This incredible organizational and team performance of this small country of Norway, 5.4 million people. And they dominate the Winter Olympics and they are making a huge, huge push in the Summer Olympics. It's a true real life study of organizational and team performance. Now, it's one thing to get at company operating properly, but it's a whole different level of unbelievable to get a country operating properly. 
but Norway did it, and they continue to do it. They finished on top of the medal counts with 37 medals overall. The Russian Olympic Committee was second with 32. Germany was third with 27. Canada finished fourth with 26. The U.S. finished fifth with 25. And then it goes down, of course, down, down, down. If you look at gold, however, you know, most of the medal counts focus on the number of gold. Well, Norway leads there as well. This is how different the gold count is. Again, top five for total medals, Norway, Russia, Germany, Canada, the U.S. For gold, it was Norway on top again. But then there was Germany, China, then the U.S., and then Sweden. So when you look at gold medals, it's a slightly different game, but Norway dominates, like big time. They were projected to get a total of 44 and they wound up with 37, so a few upsets there. But there were also some very, very pleasant surprises from countries who maybe didn't expect to medal in certain events. And, of course, Norway had a couple crashes. That's the wide world of sport, right? A couple of performances where the athletes just weren't quite there or something happened. And we saw it mostly in the Nordic events where they dominate. There was a couple of races where other countries just showed up. And some of their skiers, for whatever reason, again, welcome to the wide world of sports, just couldn't get it done for whatever reason. But there you have it. Another Winter Olympics in the books. And we'll move on from here, of course. Fantastic games. I totally enjoyed them. And I'm glad, again, that they actually went down for all those athletes. Okay, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. We're going to go to the mailbox. A question that caught me off guard. We're going to look at that. Crusher, why the athlete first? How is it better than just getting out there and playing sport? And I also want to address some of the questions you have on our theme this year, organizational and team performance. We've got some incredible interviews coming up to help us get our heads around what it really takes to achieve as a team or organization. But I want to get to a couple concepts and I want to go back into the Crusher archives way back to one of my great mentors and talk a little bit about leadership because it all starts there, I believe. When you look at team and organizational performance, somebody has to spearhead the movement let's talk about that and get into the crush mailbag right after this everybody stick around This episode of Crush Performance is brought to you in part by our good friends at Athletic Greens. Nutrition is one of our top performance priorities when it comes to athlete performance and health, and we leave no stone unturned when looking for ways to help our athletes get better nutrition. And as much as I go to the mat researching nutrition and supplements for my athletes, I'm also doing it for my family and myself. I've never been a fan of taking pills and vitamins, but I know firsthand how hard it can be to eat right with travel and busy schedules. I wanted something that would help boost my immune system, boost energy and help support recovery. Tons of people take some kind of multivitamin and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. With one scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics and adaptogens to start your day right. And it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. In fact, Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him $100 a day. Athletic Greens is cost effective, it's easy to use, and it's got a fresh tropical kind of taste that I really like. And right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, especially now that we're well into the flu and cold season. So here's what we're going to do. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash crush. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash crush with a K to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. 
I'm using it, my family's using it, and my athletes are using it, and you can be using it too. So order now, and welcome to the Essential Nutrition Movement. Get the Crush blog, podcasts, Twitter, and Facebook links at crushperformance.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Crush Performance. Hey, if you have any questions, comments, smart remarks, reach out. Crushperformance.com is the website. Info at Crush Performance is our email. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Crush and on all other social media platforms. Search out Crush Performance and you can get us there. Okay. You know, we've had a lot of great comments about our theme for 2022, which is organizational and team performance. We've had a couple shows on it already. But what we're going to do here coming up over the rest of the season is we're going to be putting together small two, three, four episode series on this very topic to really get a deep down understanding of what it takes to create organizational and team performance. And I'm glad you guys are into this, especially coming off of our topics from last year, which were talent and talent ID and the crush brain game two very, very deep and interesting topics that lead right into organizational and team performance. And you guys have been giving us your feedback. You know, everybody has been part of a team or an organization. You could call your family a team. And if you're a parent, you could call it an organization because you know what kind of organizing it takes to run a family, of course. But if you've gone to school, that's an organization you're part of. And if you've been on the debate team or if you've been in the band or if you're one of the athletes on one of the school teams, you've been part of those team environments. Everybody has probably been exposed to that environment at some point in their lives. And when you get a job, of course, you're part of an organization. Well, what does it really, really take to get an organization operating properly? Think about it for a second. That's what this whole theme is going to be about this year. Because we know it's not about just acquiring talent. We have seen teams packed with talent that just couldn't get it done. And I think one of the greatest examples of this, you know, under the Olympic theme as well, would be the U.S. Dream Team in basketball. You know, the best players in the world, the best players from the NBA getting together, they should just absolutely dominate and steamroll everybody in their path. But if you go back to 1992, which was an absolute shocker, and it also spurred on the whole concept of culture and talent and the fact that talent doesn't necessarily mean success. The 1992 Dream Team, 14 unbelievable, unexpected consecutive losses in that run to the Olympics. Absolutely unexplainable, unimaginable at the time, but having the best players together, they couldn't get it done. And then if you go to Rio in 2004, if you remember, Puerto Rico absolutely demolished. They crushed the U.S., which was one of the biggest upsets maybe in sporting history, right? Because it just shouldn't have happened. If you recall, Lithuania also beat them in pool play during that Olympics, and that just should not have happened. <laughs> it was a Vegas odds nightmare. But if you somehow bet on Lithuania to beat the USA during those games, oh my goodness, you were walking away with some serious spending money. There's no doubt about it. But isn't it funny how it works? The greatest talent doesn't always win. And that goes back to this whole idea that we're trying to really uncover this year in organizational and team performance. Talent isn't everything. In modern sport, it makes me think of a team that just absolutely fascinates me right now in Major League Baseball, and that's the Tampa Bay Rays. It's another great example of David versus Goliath when you talk about payrolls. Tampa is perennially in the lower half of Major League Baseball payrolls. Last year in 2021, their payroll, for example, was $70 million. When you look at the Mets, the Dodgers, and the Yankees, 
it's not even in the same playing field when you're talking about payroll money. The Mets were 255 million. The Dodgers, 214. The Yankees, 211. Tampa comes in with $70 million and competes. Not just competes, but really, really took to task some of these massive payroll teams. And it's exciting for me to see that a team with a lower payroll, but with really, really good plan can make it happen. You see it in baseball. You do see it in other sports as well, but I've just been watching Tampa Bay and how they operate over the last five, six years really closely. And it is fascinating to watch. You want to talk about organizational and team performance. It starts from the top. It starts from leadership. It starts from coaching and it starts from leadership in that clubhouse with the veteran players, you know, sort of steering and paving the way. But it all has to come together. If that leadership isn't there, it's not going to work. And one of the reasons that organizational and team performance is our theme for this year is because of one of my great mentors, the late and great Harvey Dorfman, who was a performance coach like no other. He was a true pioneer in multiple sports. And when I talk about the Tampa Rays and one of the reasons I've watched them so closely is because Harvey was actually involved with them when they got new ownership and they went through all those hassles with the new ownership and they carved their way to where they are right now. And I wanted to go back into the Crush archives way, way back uh, to one of our many, many interviews with Harvey Dorfman. And in this particular interview, we were talking about culture and culture turned its way into the idea of leadership. Here's a little excerpt from that interview. The sound isn't great here, but bear with it. The information is absolutely precious. Here's the late and great Harvey Dorfman talking about team culture and leadership. When I was with Oakland and then when I went to the Marlins, we used to talk about this, of course. And what I said is like, and I remember doing this with the Vancouver Canucks years ago when uh, George McPhee was there and uh, Pat Quinn. And it's a spinal column. When your spine is out of whack, Something's wrong. No matter where in that spinal column, something is not aligned right. So a spinal column for an organization means you start at the top. That's ownership, administration. That's off-field administration. On-field, that's the manager, the coaching staff, and then it gets down to the players. And that's the way you build a culture, because that's the word you chose. That means that everyone in this organization has a, a singular sense of purpose, a singular sense of purpose, and it is a, a selflessness. It is not selfish, it's selfless. It means we have a goal, and that goal is preemptive to any one of our individual desires. You know, the need to, to, to be whoever we think we are as individuals. So back to Tampa Bay, they have done that. Now, I know a little bit about whereof I speak because in 1998, their inaugural season, I was there. Working with the team. With the team. I was, Larry Rothschild was a friend of mine. He became the manager. He was a pitching coach. Yep. He asked me to come with him. I went there. It was one of the worst environments possible. Mm. First of all, an expansion team, but ownership, administration. I mean, it was a mess. And it continued to be a mess. And uh, I left that year. My wife had cancer. I went home. I said, I've had enough and so forth and so on. And they have a transformation, ownership, management, all the things that I said to you are aligned. 
they have a spinal column, and that's what happened to them this year. And I will say, Joe Madden, the manager, who I'm friendly with, I know, you know, I, I admire him. I think he makes perfect sense. He knows what he's doing. He was a nobody. He wasn't your typical, you know, the name in baseball that everybody knows and guys who are retreads, they get fired someplace and they end up somewhere else. Yep. This guy is solid. And that's why those kids are solid. And I say kids. He, he did not have to, well, they did in a way. He did not have to reshape veterans where the mold was too hard. You couldn't, you had to, you couldn't break it. Right. These kids were malleable, young, ready to be influenced, and that's what happened there. So there's your winning culture. I want to point, you were away probably in Europe and in your travels when Mike Singletary was made um, coach of San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, right, yeah, I was. I was away, yeah. I don't know if you heard that he went off on a a postseason thing where a player had, a player just pushed his, pushed the face of another player and, and was penalized 15 yards. He pulled him out of the game. He went over to the bench and he sent him into the locker room. And then in the postseason, he said things like, you can't win with that. You can't play with that. And you can't coach that. That is selfish behavior, and I will not accept it. Mike Singletary is trying. Now, I don't think the ownership out there, from everything I've heard and read, is, is, is ready for him. They, right. they might have to grow into, into what he says, but he is an example of the kind of stuff that you build winners with. Okay, so there you go, Harvey Dorfman. Now, listen. Every now and then you get to be around a person who changes the way you see things. It might be your parents, it might be your grandparents, could be your friends, could be a teacher, certainly could be a coach. But for me, Harvey Dorfman was one of those people. He was consulting with the Blue Jays when I was a strength coach. When J.P. Ricciardi came from the Oakland Athletics to become the new GM of the Toronto Blue Jays, I was in that transition. And of course... J.P. Ricciardi came out of that Oakland A's Moneyball era, and that's, I think, one of the things the Blue Jays were really looking forward to. But when we met with J.P., he wanted to do something extraordinary and special. He didn't want to just come in and build another team. Unfortunately, there were a lot of things going on with the organization in terms of ownership at that time, and that just trickled right down. But he brought Harvey Dorfman over, and If you were to talk to any of the pitchers that were there during that time frame, they would definitely talk about the influence Harvey had on their careers. Not just the pitchers, the position players, well, the entire team, the coaching staff included me, especially. I wound up spending a lot of time with Harvey. So little story. The first day I met Harvey Dorfman, he was standing on the field partway down the third baseline between third base and the outfield, just observing. And I noticed him there and I walked over and shook hands and introduced myself. I didn't really know who Harvey was at that time. I'd heard the name, but I didn't really know who he was and what he'd accomplished. And um, he introduced himself and said that, hey, you know, he was there to, you know, talk to the players. And I said, oh, great. And he said he wanted to get the players, if he could, uh, after the first group of hitting. So the last three groups of BP that day, I said, no problem. I'll round them up for you. Where do you want him? He said, in the lounge. No problem. So as batting practice started, I got the pitchers out doing their conditioning and I was letting everybody know that, hey, after the first group, all pitchers inside for a, for a meeting in the players lounge and everybody's, you know, oh man, come on. They're rolling their eyes. They're going, oh, what's this meeting about? And some of the guys literally did not want to go. They had their routine 
and you know they have their daily plan and this is kind of a surprise i said guys listen you know just go in there give it a try if you don't like it that's fine if you do like it maybe get something out of it right so make sure you're in there so we round all the guys up, get them in there, and the meeting starts, and they close the doors. Nobody in there except Harvey and the pitchers. Okay, no problem. And we're out there shagging. So it was great. You know, I loved it when the pitchers weren't around because we got to go out and shag balls at BP and have some fun with the position players. And so batting practice winds down, and everybody's heading in to get ready for the game, and the doors are still closed. And I'm going, hmm, wow, man, we're now really getting into crunch time here. And the doors were closed, and the doors were closed, and the doors were closed, and finally they blow open, you know, about 20 minutes late, which kind of puts a, a kink on the time frame for getting guys fed and changed up before the game. Uh, but the pitchers come up, and uh, they had to walk kind of right by my office, and, and I asked them, the guys, how was that? How was the meeting? Especially some of the guys that were complaining, right? I said, guys, how was it, honestly? And to the man, they said that was the best meeting they'd ever had in professional baseball. Isn't that something? We're talking, you know, rookie first year, and we're talking 10-year veterans of the game. The best meeting ever. Harvey was around the team a lot after that. He became one of my mentors, and he's one of the guys that I talked a lot about culture and organizational performance with. We certainly talked about how to, how to get the most out of each player, how to help guys get the most out of themselves. Cause really that's what it's all about. But that spurred onto this whole idea that, you know, an athlete doesn't matter how good he is. doesn't matter how good the uh, talent is. If the, if the organization and the environment isn't conducive to those guys tapping into their potential, it will never, ever work. And you know, that's been, that's been resonated again and again here as sports goes on. And I think maybe, to that point, one of the more famous comments in that regard was Bill Belichick, right? Good players cannot overcome bad coaching. That kind of personifies what Harvey was talking about and what we're always trying to work on. It doesn't matter how good the talent level is. If the environment and the leadership aren't there, you can't succeed. It's almost impossible to succeed. And think of some of the things that Harvey said in just that little excerpt from that conversation. And these are the things that kind of shape our thinking around organizational and team performance because these guys have lived it for years and years and years at the highest level. And so you have to pay heed. We can certainly expand on it. We can learn from it. But we've got to understand what it's all about because being a great talent doesn't really mean anything unless you have the environment to really succeed, right? Harvey talked about that spinal column. It's like a spinal column. And if your spinal column isn't, isn't lined up and working right, the whole thing doesn't function. And trust me, I know something about that, right? With my back surgery that I just had. That is just so true. And, and I like the analogy. Ownership, on-field, off-field administration, coaches, players, right down to the people and support staff. If everybody isn't on board with a single purpose, which in pro sports is to win and be successful. You can't, you can't possibly have a successful organization. And there's a couple words that he threw around in there. And one of them is really powerful. The idea of selflessness. And if you have that at all levels of your organization, then I think special things can happen. And I'm sure you guys can all think back in your own personal experiences of an organization that, or a team that could have been better, where the leadership wasn't there, or an organization that's just awesome, just dominates. And we've talked about some of those companies in business, right? We certainly know about those teams, those dynasty teams. How about our conversation with Joan Ryan, talking about intangibles, the culture, 
And she talked a lot about the San Francisco Giants, her team that she works with now, and how that group wasn't the most talented, but they had an unbelievable bond, an unbelievable purpose. That's why they were so successful. She also talked about Jeff Kent and Barry Bonds, two of, you know, technically, if you were to rank them, the worst teammates in the history maybe of sport. But they fed off each other, and they actually, if you look at the team, despite everything that was going on, the team won when those guys were around. So if you look at Barry Bonds, and that was just a fascinating part of that conversation, the one thing that he said, he said he didn't care about what people thought of him. All he was concerned about was being at the highest level of readiness each and every day. Imagine if you had a team of those guys, right? Now, you do have to have some kind of camaraderie. I do believe that's part of the culture. But I think when you unite people, With a single purpose, you get that. So anyway, that's what we're getting to in this organizational and team performance conversation over the course of this year. And coming up, we're going to have some great conversations. We're going to be talking with Dr. Jean Cote, a professor of psychology at Queen's University. They've come up with an incredible framework called the Personal Assets Framework. Now, this is more centered around sport and developmental sport, but they talk about all the things athletes need in order for them to be successful. Things that have to be provided by the organization and the leadership, the coaching. And we'll talk to Dr. Cote about something called transformational coaching, which goes into leadership anyway. You could be a manager in a company or, you know, you could be a parent at home. This transformational coaching and the components that surround that are really, really powerful across the board. We're also going to talk with Phil Tao, who is a performance coach. Performance enhancement coaching is his program. He works with athletes and coaches, top business leaders, producers, actors, musicians, and he is probably the sole reason the band Metallica is still together today. He was hired by the band through some of their very, very troubling times. The band was falling apart and they brought Phil in to see if they could put the pieces back together. And he was instrumental, not just in bringing the band back together, but sending them to where they are today. He's still very close to the band. And of course, they give him all the credit for some of their recent success. So it's going to be a fantastic conversation talking to Phil Towell about team and organizational performance for sure, but also how you can tap into and raise your level of performance so you can become part of one of those environments, right? Because you have to be able to fit in at those high performing environments, those organizations and teams, you have to be at that level. So you have to get there, but then also you have to contribute, but the organization has to have the environment where everybody can prosper. So I can't wait for this. It's going to be an exciting year. And again, we're going to have multiple series over the course of this year focused on our theme, kind of like we did with the talent and talent ID and crush brain game series last year. So Okay, really quickly, as we wrap up the show here, I wanted to get to an email that came into the mailbox here last week. It kind of took me off guard, and that's why I want to address it, because I've been talking about this as we head into the Olympics and as we head into summer sport and that transition comes around. You know, I always talk about the hierarchy of development and our top priorities for development, the brain game, sleep, rest, recovery, nutrition, hydration, posture, range of motion, movement, developing the athlete before you even think about getting into the technical game. So I've been talking about that a lot, as you guys know lately, but this email came in and it simply just said this, Crusher, why the athlete first? How is it better than just getting out there and playing? Well, it's a great question. I'm not going to lie to you. And there might be some truth to that as well. There's this concept out there when it comes to athlete development, and it has to do with just sort of learning in general. It's more of a human thing, but it's certainly applicable to the world of sport. And it's a philosophy that talks about 
whole part whole in terms of helping an individual understand how to develop and get their head around performing inside of a task in sport or position in sport, right? And so the concept kind of goes, okay, well, if the person doesn't have any concept as to what the task, the game, or the position is, how can they even tie in their athletic abilities to that sport? So it goes kind of like this, um, you know, the whole, get them out there doing the sport, experiencing it and getting some kind of context and then break it down into its parts. And this is kind of under discussion right now. Does it really work? Does it not work? It does work if you plan it. And it, I do believe without question, it's better than any other philosophy out there. And we're going to talk to some of those people coming up, uh, but I've seen it, I've done it and I've, I've seen it at, at work. And it's incredibly effective if it's planned out properly. Whole. You go experience the whole thing. You break down its parts. That might be positional work. It might be technical, tactical work. It certainly includes athlete development. And then you go back and you put it together in whole again. And that sort of rotation keeps going and going and going and going till the person's done or retires from sport altogether, right? So there, there is a place for what that emailer is saying. You know, why not get out there and play first? Yes, and I cannot say I disagree with that. But when we start talking about high-performance pathways, and let's say an athlete is maybe elite high school, going the college route, or trying to get into the pro route, or, or even trying to get from minor league sports to major league sports, or you're on a national team or junior national team trying to make an Olympic national team, right? This is where the concept of athlete development can be applied all the way down to grassroots, and they should be, Right? seasonal you plan out your annual plan where you do have a time where you focus on playing your sport but you also have to understand if you're really going to help your athletes at any level recreational grassroots right up to our elite most elite pro guys you have to make sure you're preparing them for that sport and sometimes even beyond what the sport demands are if you're really, really going to have an impact. So that is a great question and it kind of comes around to some of the shows we're going to have this year. I am going to talk about pure athlete development. We're going to break down the components of athlete development. I'm going to talk about strength training and all the components of the strength side, including power training. Right, Strength training can be broken down into so many different ways you can change and enhance performance, but it's not all conducive to in-sport performance or sporting outcomes. Like, for example, if you have a power sport, like let's say baseball, for example, or tennis even, you can't be in the weight room lifting heavy volumes of work. It's not conducive to your game performance. So, so those things have to be balanced. The strength training should be explosive type work as you're getting into your competitive season. And this is the ebb and flow and balance of the annual plan and even life plan of an athlete. There is a time to get out there and just play. Absolutely. Put your skills, use, challenge yourself, get better at the game. And then also there's a time in the development of an athlete. If you look at the long-term development of an athlete, there's a time where in-game experience is more valuable than actually training the technical, tactical skill side. You have to put it all together. That's the ebb and flow long-term. We could talk about long-term, long-term athlete development again. It's a critical concept to long-term athlete development. We should play fewer games the younger our athletes are. And as they get more accomplished and the skill set starts to develop and they start to mature, the strength comes around, coordination comes around, mental maturity starts coming around, decision-making, then the in-game experience, it gives them that just polished, broadened concept of what they really have to do and how to put their assets to use, their strength, speed, quickness, whatever it might be. So great, great question. And that is truly what it's all about. It's not cut and dry. I'm not saying 
do do the athlete and don't do anything else. No, train the athlete with purpose for their sport. And if you have multi-sport athletes, that's a, even more fun because now you've got to change the focus on the athlete development side to match up with the changes of the sport, which is great. So no, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But great question, you guys. Again, keep them coming. Info at Crush Performance is our email all right hey so look we got to get out of here right now we're out of time uh i, I gotta get going here too again i'm i'm remote i'm out consulting right now we'll be back in studio here over the next couple of weeks but we're going to be in and out all summer so you're going to hear this kind of sound this is our remote portable studio um, so the sound will be a little bit different but i hope you guys just totally appreciate the fact that we're out there in the trenches and trying to share information at the same time keep those questions coming everybody get out there have a great week and we'll talk to you next time right here on crush performance Hey, it's Rock Riley, and I am so jacked up. I got a new podcast. Once a week, it's The Rock Stops Here. I'm going to be talking with athletes and entertainers, current and former, on making it to the promised land, to the top. And what happens when it's all over and you don't know what to do and you got family problems and money creeps in and health and all that jazz. Real talk. No more corporate BS. I can call it like it is. The Rock Stops Here. With me, Rock Riley, can be found anywhere you find your podcasts and radioinfluence.com.